Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Jeremiah. When we don't do what God asks, but we still want Him to do what we ask. That's hypocrisy. That's duplicity. When we deliberately disobey God, that He is still somehow obligated to come through for us. Why do we think this? Zedekiah thought this. He's like, I don't really want to heed the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, but I sure want God to bless me, and I sure want God's favor, and I sure want God to help me. So he sends a messenger to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, please pray to the Lord for us. Please pray to the Lord for us. How about just obeying God? In your walk with Jesus, have you ever been a hypocrite in what you expect in return from Him? Have you been living out your faith with not much vigor, and yet you still expect mighty deliverance from the Lord? In today's message, Pastor Gary wants you to know that if you expect God to be there for you, then you need to remain there for Him. Yes, He will always be by your side, but you can't expect to maintain a loving relationship if you're treating Him like a genie out of a bottle. Stay true to God's love. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, as he begins his message, Don't Lose Sight of God. Let's take our Bibles and jump right into our study this morning. We're going to be Jeremiah chapter 39. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 39. We come now here to one of the most tragic chapters in all of the book of Jeremiah, perhaps one of the most tragic chapters in the whole Bible, in a sense. This is what Jeremiah had warned about that is now coming to pass, that if the Jewish people did not turn from their rebellion and turn back to God, that the consequences would be the Babylonian army would come and would besiege the city of Jerusalem and destroy it. And this is what chapter 39 is all about. So the year we know historically is 586 B.C. And this is what it says. I'm going to read the first seven verses from chapter 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sharazer of Samgar, Nabo Sarskim, a chief officer, Nergal Sharazer 
a high official and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. We'll pause there and pray. Father, we come before you, very heavy chapter. We pray that the words of this chapter would speak to our hearts and that you would use this tragedy. This would have been an avoidable situation, but because of the rebellion of the people, your discipline came to them, and we pray that we would learn from this. That, Lord, you love us so much that you will at times discipline us when we stray from you. And we want to learn from this story. We want to see how it applies to our lives today. So, Father, make it personal. And we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for the privilege of being in your house to freely worship you. We pray that you will be glorified in all things. And that you will use this as we study your word together to speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Nuclear warfare, I think you would agree, is a horrific thing. And that is why so many in our world get nervous when certain madmen who govern certain countries like Iran and North Korea make progress towards the advancement of nuclear weapons. In the hands of the wrong people, nuclear weapons can wipe out entire nations in the blink of an eye. Warfare wasn't so quick in ancient times. Modern warfare has been described as shock and awe, but ancient warfare would be described as slow and calculating. Of all the forms of ancient warfare that were considered most barbaric, siege warfare ranks among them. And what we have here in chapter 39 is siege warfare. If you'll notice again in your Bibles, verse 1, it gives us the timeline. Again, it's 586 B.C., but it tells us that it's the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. That's his reign in the ninth year. It's in the tenth month of his ninth year that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. Some of your translations say besieged it. So this is describing a tactic of warfare called siege warfare. Now, back in those ancient days, your greatest defense was a wall. The fortification of a city with a wall around it was your best defense because back in those days, they didn't have the kind of artillery to easily break through a wall or to scale it or to tunnel under it. So if you are a citizen of a city, your best defense is what would be considered an impenetrable wall for protection. And so what ancient armies would do in those days, since it was difficult or at least not easily able to break down a wall or scale it or tunnel under it, was they would engage in siege warfare. And siege warfare was basically 
when you put the city on lockdown, when an invading army would encircle the city that was walled and they would cage you in and no one could come and no one could go. And then it was basically a game of endurance. It was a game of wait and see. Now, at the time that they would wait and see, the invading army would also build often earthen siege ramps to make a walkway over the wall, but that took a long period of time too, depending on how high the walls were. And then, of course, there was the attack from people on top of the wall to prevent you from making a siege ramp. So it was all difficult, but it didn't often involve a lot of artillery. Maybe there was an occasional arrow that would come over the city wall or would be lobbed toward the city, but it wasn't until the Greek empire that they came up with the catapult. And so typically in ancient warfare, the Assyrians, and here in this context, the Babylonians, they would engage in this siege warfare, and the winner was basically the one who could last the longest. It was a cat and mouse game of endurance. And so because this was a common form of warfare, in those ancient times, people would be prepared for this. And they would often stockpile large amounts of food within the city walls, And they would tunnel for water to make sure they had a fresh water source because they realized they were going to have to be prepared to hunker down and to endure perhaps a long siege. If you remember from your high school history days, the Trojan War, Homer told us that the siege against Troy took 10 years, 10 years of just wait and see and cutting off any food supplies, no one coming, no one going. And so The object of this siege warfare was, let's see who has the greatest endurance. The people in the city were hoping that the army outside the city would run out of food or get tired of waiting and or perhaps be recalled from the sending nation. The army hoped that the people within the city would also run out of a food supply and start to starve or run out of a water supply and then surrender. So that's siege warfare, and that's what we have happening here in chapter 39 of Jeremiah. It was a waiting game. Again, it wasn't so much a battle of weaponry or skill. It was a matter of the will to survive. Who had the best water supply? Who had the best food supply? Who could withstand the elements and disease? It was a battle of endurance. And so here in chapter 39, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia, has engaged in siege warfare against the city of Jerusalem, which again is the capital city of this southern province, the southern territory of Israel known as Judah. And let me tell you how bad it got. It got so bad that it tells us in verses 1 and 2, when you do the math here of chapter 39 and you see that the siege started in the 10th month of the ninth year of the reign of Zedekiah, and in verse 2 it ends on the fourth month of Zedekiah's 11th year, that the siege lasted for 18 months. 18 months. The Jewish people are held up within the city walls, surviving, holding on, stubborn, because they have not yielded to what God wanted them to do. And so now they're in this predicament. No fault of God's. It was the fault of their own. They didn't have to be invaded like this. The Babylonians didn't have to come. The city didn't have to be besieged. But they were in this predicament because of their own stubbornness and sinfulness against God. And over the period of 18 months, they ran out of food within the city. And they still had a water source because King Hezekiah 
had previously tunneled underground and brought in the spring of Gihon, which was outside the city walls, into the city and then covered up the original source so that there is still a water supply. In fact, when we go to Israel, we go through Hezekiah's tunnel just to see how incredible it was, carved out of solid bedrock underground. It wasn't discovered until the 19th century. They had a water supply, but they ran out of food and they began to starve. And the people within the city did something that was unthinkable. Now, Jeremiah doesn't give us the details in this book that he wrote, but Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations, which is the next book after Jeremiah. And Lamentations is somewhat of an epilogue to the story of the book of Jeremiah. And in Lamentations, Jeremiah gives us the details, the gruesome details of what life was like, hemmed in for 18 months as starvation began to set in. I'm going to read to you from Lamentations chapter 4, just so you get an idea, as horrific as this scene is, just what is going on here at this particular time. Now, you can either listen or you can turn. It's just the next book over. But I'm going to read from Lamentations chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. And here's how Jeremiah describes some of the starvation and famine that is taking place within the city of Jerusalem. Lamentations 4, verse 4. Because of the thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. In other words, he's comparing the time when God judged Sodom, but he rained down fire and brimstone and the destruction was swift, but not here. This is slow and painful. He says in verse 7, their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearances like sapphires. In other words, when they were healthy and they had food, they were glowing. Their appearance and their countenance was glowing. Verse 8, but now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands... Compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. This is a horrible scene, isn't it? It's horrific. Siege warfare, famine, and they even resort to cannibalism. Mothers are cooking their children. You know, when starvation sets in, I mean, you're not even rational anymore. You begin to lose all sense of what is right. And they just are doing something that is unthinkable here. And so back here in chapter 39, now, if you go back to chapter 39, I just wanted to say all that so we get the full weight of this scene and what is happening. But in chapter 39, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem And it lasts for about 18 months, and then he breaks through the wall, verse 2 tells us, which explains to us that not only were they playing this wait-and-see game, but 
Nebuchadnezzar was chipping away at the wall over 18 months as well. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, who prophesied during the same time as Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel tells us in his description of the scene that the Babylonians actually used battering rams. The Assyrians before them did as well. And so they're slowly just breaching the wall, chipping at it with their battering rams until eventually after 18 months, they have a breach in the wall and the Babylonian army rushes in. And when that happens, King Zedekiah of Jerusalem flees and soldiers with him and the Jewish people, they flee out of other gates to try to get out of the city now because the Babylonians have overtaken Jerusalem. And it tells us, however, that the Babylonian army pursues and captures King Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho and that Nebuchadnezzar, verse 5, says he pronounced sentence on Zedekiah. So there's this little trial that's held here. And Nebuchadnezzar finds Zedekiah as a guilty foe, and he sentences him. And then it tells us in the text, just more horrific stuff, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar slaughters the sons of Zedekiah in front of him. He makes Zedekiah watch this. While Nebuchadnezzar kills Zedekiah's sons and all the nobles of Judah, and then it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar gouges out the eyes of Zedekiah. Or perhaps, you know, sears them, but he puts out the eyes of Zedekiah. Here's the reason why he does it. Because Nebuchadnezzar wants Zedekiah's last visual to be the death of his sons. Seared in the mind of Zedekiah for the rest of his life. The last thing that he sees is Nebuchadnezzar slaughtering his sons. Nebuchadnezzar puts his eyes out. That's the statement Nebuchadnezzar's making. This will be the last thing you see for the rest of your life. And then Nebuchadnezzar puts shackles of bronze on Zedekiah and takes him off to Babylon. And as terrible as this scene is, the truth is that Zedekiah had lost his sight way before this event. He had been blind to a lot of things, primarily the condition of his own heart, and the condition of the heart of the nation of Judah, because they had forgotten God. You see, the loss of his physical eyes was simply symbolic of the larger issue. Zedekiah had lost sight of God. And I want us to see in the chapters preceding this event here, what happened in Zedekiah's life? What were the mistakes that Zedekiah made that ultimately resulted not just in the physical loss of sight, but even long before that, the loss of seeing God. And so for those of you taking notes, we're going to apply these four things that we're going to see from Zedekiah's life, answering the question, when do we lose sight of God in hopes that we'll learn from his bad example and not lose sight of God ourselves, that God will not become relegated to some peripheral aspect of our lives, but that he will be central to our lives and that he will be Lord of our lives. So as we go through these four things I want to see from Zedekiah's life, let's go back to chapter 37 in your Bible. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 37 and look with me at the first three verses, and we're going to see the first thing that went wrong in Zedekiah's life that caused him really to lose his sight of God. In chapter 37, here's verses 1, 2, and 3. 
Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he reigned in place of Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim. Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land, notice this, paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Underline that. They paid no attention to the words that the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 3, King Zedekiah, however sent Yahukal, son of Shelemiah, with the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Okay, what we learn here in chapter 37, your attention please, is that Zedekiah was made a puppet king of the Babylonian empire. That the kings of Judah typically succeeded one another as a result of son succeeding father. And so you have Jehoiakim, and then you have his son Jehoiakim, and Nebuchadnezzar has hauled off those kings to Babylon, and then he appoints Zedekiah. Among the Jewish people, he appoints this guy, and he says, now, I want you to be king over this particular territory, and if you obey me and do what is right, then all will go well with you. But if you ever rebel against me, I'm going to come back with a vengeance. Well, Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar as he's rebelled against God, as he's rebelled against a lot of things. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back with a fury here. But what it tells us is something about the heart of Zedekiah. Notice here, it tells us in verse 2 that he didn't want to do what God asked. But yet he had the audacity in verse 3 to send a messenger to Jeremiah to ask Jeremiah to ask something of God on his behalf. And so here's the first thing. When we lose sight of God is this. When we don't do what God asks, but we still want him to do what we ask. That's hypocrisy. That's duplicity. When we deliberately disobey God, that he is still somehow obligated to come through for us. Why do we think this? Zedekiah thought this. He's like, I don't really want to heed the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, but I sure want God to bless me. And I sure want God's favor. And I sure want God to help me. So he sends a messenger to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, please pray to the Lord for us. Please pray to the Lord for us. How about just obeying God? And we have to be mindful of this because we can play this game as well. Now, listen, in deference to the mercy of God, I am convinced that God will sometimes deliver us in ways that we clearly don't deserve. And I'm thankful for his mercy. But we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can continue to disobey God, but that he will bless us anyway. In Psalm 66, 18, it says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We need to realize this. There's another example in the book of Isaiah, when God rebuked the people of Israel because of their sinfulness, he told them that he would not listen to their prayers. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it says this, God says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. God says, I'm not even going to listen to your prayers because you're not obeying me. So why do you think I should answer your prayers when you're in deliberate disobedience to me? This is important for us to understand. When we're not in a right place with God, the only prayers that God hears are prayers of repentance and forgiveness. We can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we can be in deliberate disobedience to God and still make our request known as if he's going to somehow be obligated to answer those prayers. To be in deliberate disobedience to God and still expect him to answer our prayers is not only unrealistic, it's frankly unbiblical. 
It's an expectation that is not accurate. Zedekiah was a very conflicted man. I don't want to do what God asks, but I hope that God will do what I ask. When that sets in, we are apt to lose sight of God. Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of Jeremiah. Known as the Weeping Prophet, he was only 20 years old when he began his prophetic life. Though not specifically mentioned, it is believed he would have followed the life of a pastor. And because of his young age, he was not always well received. No doubt this influenced his writings. And because of their heavy and often negative tone, he earned his title as the Weeping Prophet. However, this did not stop him, and he went on to prophesy the many truths that the people of Jerusalem needed to hear. Did you know that getting together as a church family is one way that you can hear truth from one another? Cornerstone Chapel gets together each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday at 7 p.m. to learn from the Word and spend time in worship as sons and daughters of the King. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We also encourage and believe in the power of praying together and for one another. Email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net with your prayer needs today. Thanks for listening to The Weeping Prophet, Jeremiah, today on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know